Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I have promised I'm not going to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers. We are not going to get into that at all. There's so many other things uh, going on. I suppose the uh, good news, bad news, the uh, the bad news is we have inflation over 5%. Uh, the good news is if you're getting Social Security, you just got a big cost of living increase, which I'm not sure is like super, super good news. Uh, but we have a lot to talk about today, including um, what is going on with the Claremont Institute, which, of course, as you know, is one of my favorite topics. Uh, and our guest today is Emma Green, staff writer for The Atlantic who covers politics, policy, and religion. And Emma recently interviewed the president of Claremont Institute, which, um, Emma, you called the intellectual home of America's Trumpist right. That's, yeah, I, 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 I think that's just about the long and short of it. It, it is. I, I, I think it is fair. So to introduce you to the audience, you tweeted out last month that you have a newish gig. I guess my boss has noticed that I'm unpleasant to hang out with at happy hours because I shamelessly grill people on their intimate views. So they asked me to do something productive with it. So uh, you are now the host of the Atlantic interview. That's right. I, I always say that being a journalist is professional cover for being rude. And that's basically what's going on here. We're trying to have conversations with people in frank, direct ways about the most important topics in public life. And that's very grandiose. But I think it's really important to talk to people directly, ask questions directly about some of the biggest and most controversial positions that people are pushing in public life. And their intimate views. So, Emma, dog or cat person? <laughs> the classic intimate view. Yeah. I don't I don't have an opinion. I'm so oh. boring. I, I'm kind of opinionless every, by disposi every, every. disposition, but... See, now, is this, is this part of the problem, though, of interviewing? Because you ask people, because you know that everyone has an opinion. It's like if I asked you, what was the most embarrassing thing that happened to you in high school, right? Mm -hmm. you, you wouldn't actually tell me. Isn't this the problem that people edit? They would come up with, well, I don't know. It's when I got the highest score in the SAT, and I was afraid that my friends would feel bad. Or <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? Is there, yeah. I, I think that's true to a certain extent. And I always keep in mind that somebody might be BSing me or trying to spin me. But I think there's also something rare about being asked questions directly, even for really famous people or public officials. Often politeness makes people want to talk around something instead of just getting right to it. And so I think there's a lot of power actually in saying to people straight up, like, you know, let's go deep. Tell me so, about this moment. Well, well, you sat down with the president of Princeton University, and your first question was, why should Princeton exist? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how, how, did he, how did he react to that? I mean, were you in person? Did you actually see his, uh, the eye contact? Like, uh, what the hell? You know? <laughs> uh, we were in person. We were sitting across a big table yeah. in a very fancy office that I assume only university presidents get to have. And, you know... Christopher Eisgruber, the president of Princeton, he is a very nice and very formal guy. He's a he's a legal scholar. So he really brings a lot of gravitas to sit at that table. And, you know, I think he was a little taken aback, but he also played along. I think he understood that the questions I was asking him were not just me messing with him. They were trying to get at a really deep problem and question about elite universities. 
No, it is interesting, you know, uh, in, in the history of interviewing, sometimes those open-ended questions are the most revealing. I was, I was thinking of the Roger Mudd interview with, uh, with Edward Kennedy, where he just said, why, why do you want to be president? <laughs> and Teddy just melted down because nobody had ever asked him something broad like that, you know, and it was I, I so I, I do think that there's a value in saying so, you know, why are you here? What is you know, what is what is the per- I could I could ask you, well, why 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 should the Atlantic m- magazine exist? I mean, it's not like we have a shortage of magazines, right? <laughs> well, the Atlantic Magazine is one of the oldest continuously running magazines in America, and it's the great magazine of the American idea uh, of no oh, party so you, or. You were prepped for this. This is good. Yeah, no. Okay. At, at HR, when they do intake, they make you go through a, a kind that of uh, education camp, and so you know all the lines to say on podcasts. But that seriously, you know, I that was <laughs> that was. I'm imp- I, I am I am impressed. Okay, <laughs> so are, are there. Are there are there people that you fantasize about interviewing? I was thinking that, you know, I was reading through some of the way you, you, you conduct the interviews. And if you sat down with John Gruden today, hmm. what would you ask him? Oh, man. Because I'm, think, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm trying to be you, but, but, uh, but my version of you, which is you're much nicer than me. And I would go, hey, thanks for coming in uh, today, uh, Coach. What the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I mean, did you so, did you not think that people were going to see those emails? I mean, what a what a moron! I mean, did or, or you would you would be nice about it, right? You go, hey, so what was your favorite memory of the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> um, no, I think that would directly contradict my pledge to ask direct and pointed questions. And look, I think that talking to a guy like him is useful. This is where I think I have a different attitude than some people in our culture right now, which is when a guy does something stupid or they get canceled or whatever, some people think they should be obliterated and not really engaged with anymore. And I actually do think it would be useful to get on the phone with him and be like, what were you thinking? How, How could you possibly be such a high-profile leader who would make such a big mistake. I will say, though, I would probably be a bad person to talk to him because I know nothing about football. So I'm like a really bad candidate. I think you should probably take that one, Charlie. No, I, I think I think in, in part, I think you would be a good interviewer because it's really not about football. It's about, I, I, I mean, things like this, I, I, I wonder what is it like to be someone who just signed a 10-year, $100 million contract to do something that your whole life has been, you know, has revolved around, and suddenly you're out. You, you, you lose the contract and you are, I'm sorry to use the term, canceled. Um, yeah. That must be that strange feeling when you realize that, wow, you're, you know, you're, you're a pariah. Most people don't have any idea what that's like. It's particularly a high, high profile. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think that's the value of a direct interview with people who aren't often asked direct questions in part because they're insulated from them, right? Right. That human experience that you're describing is actually really useful for understanding both his mindset and mentality when he was making these really terrible errors of judgment, but also understanding how it feels to go through something that other people might experience just on a much smaller scale. Right. I mean, the, you know, the, the person who loses a, a very small job whose phone stops ringing and whose, uh, you know, texts go unanswered is probably has the same, same emotional 
content is somebody lose a hundred million dollars. I mean, this is what they, I think people forget is that, that human beings are human beings. And so, you know, lose, losing your job as the manager of Walmart because you've been canceled is, is going to be as traumatic to that person as the person that loses the hundred million dollars. Are you following me here or am I? Yeah, no, I, I, think I, I, that, I, I think that's basically right. And I, and I think that's also why inter- interviews can be such an interesting format because you get to hear directly from a person about how they're navigating universal human experiences. The best interviews are about that. They're about themes and experiences no. that people can really latch on to and try to empathize with. Yeah. I still haven't gotten any of your intimate views though. So uh, <laughs> what, what, I'm, I'm the what, interview I'm the interviewer, not necessarily yeah, the interviewee. Well, so what 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 was your what, what was your worst job? What would your nightmare job be? I mean you have this great job, but what would the worst job you could possibly imagine doing? I mean if everything just Wow. That's that's a really hard question. It is. Um, I you know one of the things that I love about my job now is that I get to talk to and meet a huge variety of people. I get to go out do, and do make they, trouble. Do, do, they, and... do, do they do they dodge the question like you're doing now? <laughs> my interview subjects. Y- yes. Yeah. I well, asked you your worst job. Okay, I, I'm going to actually Not make a valid hard. point. So, <laughs> okay. so I'm I'm a creature who loves to go out and make trouble and get in, yeah. into adventure and meet people and learn stuff. And I think the opposite of that, a, a job where I'm like alone in a right. little room just by myself uh, with my thoughts, would probably feel wow. really challenging to me. See now, you see, this is where you and I are completely different because I'm a total introvert, you know, and I, and I and I think that like my worst job would be like customer service, huh. <laughs> or you have to interact with people in an annoying way. I think that would be that would be difficult. But I you're think a radio that, guy. That's like you know, that's you must have some sort of affinity for people or an ability to talk to them, right? As long as you don't have to see them, right? That's just. Uh, <laughs> I, no, see, I'm, I'm an I'm an only child, so I don't work or play well with others. Are are, are you from a big family? <laughs> I'm not. I have a brother. Uh, I like to think that I get along with other people, but I know that I'm something of an acquired taste. All the best people are. Uh, that's that's true. Is 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 it because you 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 probe people's you know because at parties you are asking people awkward questions? Is is that why you're an acquired taste? <laughs> yes. I'm just asking. I just think. You know. No, I, I think that's correct. One day, you and I, Charlie, will be at a dinner party. It will be your only dinner party of the year since you don't like people. No. And you will discover that I am just incorrigibly rude. But here's the thing. I I like people. I think people are fascinating. And I really just want to understand what's going on in people's heads and hearts. So that's why I do it. But, you know, it's it's kind of a sign that I can't turn off the faculty of grilling people when I'm just supposed to be hanging no, out and see, chilling, actually, right? You, yeah, you and I are not that different because I, I've always found, and this is when I was in journalism, um, that I, I always found that people were, were far more interesting than you thought they were. Oh, totally. And, 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 and if, and if you, you ask the most seductive words in the English language, tell me about yourself. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, they are, right? I mean, it's, yes. uh, it's like, tell me, about, tell me about yourself. Um, very few people won't open up at, at, at least at some level. Um, and, uh, so I, I actually do that as I actually do that as well. So, all right. So Emma, I wanted to, to talk to you today about your interview with Ryan Williams, uh, from the Claremont Institute. Now the Claremont Institute, I mean, you could, if I wrote a book called, you know, how the right lost its mind, you could devote the entire theme of that book 
to tracking the Claremont Institute, which not that long ago was one of the most prestigious, important intellectual uh, bastions of the conservative movement. And watching what uh, they have become is truly extraordinary. Uh, their sort of descent into um, whether it's alt right or alt right curious, um, I'll leave that up to 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 others. But uh, they have uh, they have gone deep into Trumpism and maybe even past Trumpism. I mean, there's there's a you you refer to them as the intellectual home of America's Trumpist right. Well, of course, Trump himself has no intellectual content rightsoever. I mean, there's there's, there's nothing there in terms of intellectual content. So they're sort of like bolting on these these kind of uh, authoritarian um, racial identity uh, ideas on top of Trumpism. Is, is that a fair statement? Would you look at it differently? I would frame it slightly differently, which is I think they would fully admit that part of what they're trying to build goes beyond the scope of Trump. Trump himself has a lot of flaws as a character question and as a leader question, but that he stood for and enacted a certain set of policies and also a certain posture towards the culture that they fundamentally think is right. So I, I think they're trying to build the scaffolding that's going to last beyond Trumpism. It's sort of this national conservatism movement that they're part of. Um, so so I think that they, they might actually agree with more of what you're describing about Trump and whether or not he's a good vehicle for their project than you think. Okay. So uh, among the things in, the, in this interview, uh, Ryan Williams says, the Constitution is really only fit for Christian people. What, what was your reaction to that? Well, he's he. I, to be fair, he slightly modified that to say yeah. a mostly Christian people, and he was, you know, purporting to sort of echo what Washington was saying or echo the, what the founders were saying. Mm. But you know, what we were talking about at the time was: can America hold together when the people of America are so radically different on fundamental convictions about life, the universe, and everything, about religion, about God, the nature of salvation, the nature of the human person. And I, I think this is the question that they are most preoccupied with, which is they feel that there is some segment of America that has gone so radically far away from their conception of life, the universe, and everything that they maybe can't share a political project with them anymore. I think that's the really core question of Claremont. Well, the 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 political project of course is the idea of the United States and and you get into this whole question of the possibility of a civil war. Um was was the the headline on your piece was something like you know the people who dread the civil war but are preparing for it and and he tells you the civil war was terrible. It should it should be the thing we try to avoid almost at all costs. I, I thought the word almost was kind of interesting in that context. Yeah, absolutely. That was the thing that caught my eye too, right? You know, I always have this question in the back of my mind, and I asked Ryan Williams about this. When I read the writing that the Claremont Institute is publishing, there's always a sense of dire stakes, a sense of the existential moment that America is at. And in the back of my head, I'm always thinking, okay, like, where are the weapons stockpiles? Like, are you guys really taking this to its logical end, which is that you think we're gearing up for literal war because we are at this breaking point that cannot be sustained? And, you know, he he averred somewhat, but to an extent, I think that's also context to keep in mind for framing their project. I, I don't know that they shy away 100% 
from the possibility that we're going to get there as a country. Well, I mean, and, and they have published articles that basically say that, you know, people who didn't vote for Trump aren't real Americans. I mean, this is this is, you know, kind of at the heart of some of the more extreme things that the Claremont Institute has embraced. Yeah, the big example that that gets at that was this essay by Glenn Elmers, who's one yep, of their contributors and scholars. And and the way that he put it was that there's some subset of Americans, and he said certainly more than half, who are resident aliens. They're not really American in any recognizable sense. And that to wow. me is wow. it's 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 really interesting because there's a sort of simplistic interpretation of that, which is like, you know, about illegal immigrants or it's about people of color or whatever. And I think those things are definitely lurking in the background here in the con- in the background context. But I think actually what they're talking about is, again, this feeling like there is some planet within the country of America of people who so fundamentally don't share the values that they think you need to be American that it, they're just not really even recognizable citizens or participants in the American project anymore. Well, I want to get to the Eastman memo in a moment, but also, you know, you, you really touch on the the role of race and, and quite frankly, racism with, with the Claremont Institute. And uh, one of the things that he said to you was the high incarceration rate of black Americans is due to their much higher propensity to commit violent crime. So obviously, there's there's no problem with the American justice system. There's no bias uh, in the in the prison system. It's basically blacks are in prison because they're more likely to be criminals. I mean, uh, that's uh, uh, I mean that that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg of some of the racial identity politics these people play with, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think what's interesting about Claremont is that they are not absolutely not neo Nazis. They're not out with the kind of predictable, you know, death to the Jews, whites reign supreme. And Ryan Williams actually resisted when I was asking him to identify exactly what it meant to be part of the original sort of founding heritage of America. He he, he resisted that, you know, the only people who have a place in America are white people or people of European descent. So so they don't see themselves in that light and they don't talk in that way. But I, I think... The, the main thing I picked up on from our conversation was that they believe there are certain truths that are unstatable truths in public life because of the way that we in America talk about race, the sort of, right. they would say like preciousness about, you know, not being racist or, you know, not pretending like there's racial differences. And they are determined to say out loud the things that they believe are true. Um, and one of those as you mentioned, is that he was just stating, you know, I'm not afraid to state the fact that, you know, black people commit crimes at higher rates than white people. What was struck, what really struck me about that exchange is that we, I was asking him, you know, what do you do about the fact that the prison system in the United States locks up so many more black men and has all of these biases built in with sentencing, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing he said was, well, we'd have to figure out whether that's actually the case. We'd have to look into that further. Yeah. So what that suggested to me is like, he's not asking those questions, right? That's not the line of inquiry that he's really interested in. Well, also, the, the, the Claremont Institute is obviously getting a lot of attention for the people it associates itself with. I mean, it used to be a collection of... Uh, of, you know, often very prestigious scholars, people who wrote books of some of the most important thinkers in the conservative movement. 
And more recently, uh, they've named uh, to their, they have a fellow program, which uh, at one time was highly respected. Uh, back in, 19, in 2019, they, they, they named Jack Posobiec as a fellow. I mean, this guy is sort of famous for pushing the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Uh, they've promoted the work of people like Darren Beatty, who um, I, I could strongly argue is no, definitely not a neo-Nazi, but certainly, uh, shall we say, um, racist adjacent, if not you know flagrantly racist. Um, and of course, uh, John Eastman. I mean, they they seem not to care about uh, some of the. Let me put it this way. Uh, you know, we we talk a lot about guardrails in the conservative movement. Um, they they seem to have dropped those guardrails. I mean, J- Jack Posobiec as a scholar, Darren Beatty is somebody who'd be promoted by Ryan Williams. Um, this is this is a real departure for quote unquote respectable conservative think tanks, isn't it? Yeah, and this was something that we got into. I asked him about one of the Publius fellows who is a legislative assistant for Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's yes. obviously, um, you know. The congresswoman who's perhaps most stated views that are conspiratorial and out there in terms of being uh, misaligned with reality. Um, And, you know, he kind of hemmed and hawed, right? He didn't want to be like, you know, we're QAnon fans or, you know, MTG is our girl. But he also wouldn't disavow her and he wouldn't draw a line, which is to say people who talk about politics in ways that are patently not true and not based in fact are not welcome in the Claremont universe. That was not something he was willing to say. He wasn't even willing to acknowledge that the right has a very sizable conspiracy problem on its on its right fringe. And so, really? yeah, hmm. I, I think that has consequences. And it, and it especially has consequences, as you said, for how they conceptualize themselves as a think tank, if they are welcome to all comers, including people who peddle lies or conspiracies, then, you know, it very much changes the project of what they're doing. It's no longer people who are trying in good faith to exist within the realm of shared facts and reality that hopefully all of us try to live in together. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really defining moments for Ryan Williams was was on or around January 6th. I, I mentioned the name Darren Beatty, and I don't expect that a lot of people are going to uh, to know that. Um, he's He was a speechwriter for the Trump White House. He was actually fired for having spoken at a conference of uh, alongside white supremacists. And he's he is he is out there. And, and, and Williams himself um, has, uh, you know, as you know, uh, promoted guys like Darren Beatty. And on, on January 6th, um, Darren Beatty, just to give you a sense who this guy is, who has been promoted um, by Claremont, um, went on a tweet storm during the assault on the Capitol. And he started tweeting at um, African-Americans telling them to take a knee. So Darren Beatty at uh, 2.25 p.m. Tim Scott needs to learn his place and take a knee to MAGA. Of course, Tim Scott being a African-American Republican senator. Uh, a few minutes later, Black Lives Matter must take a knee to MAGA. They must learn their place. A few minutes later, Ibram Kendi, who is associated with critical race theory, needs to learn his place, take a knee to MAGA, learn his proper role in our society. And then, um, for some reason, um, went after K. Cole James, the African-American President of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, K. Cole James of Heritage, needs to learn her natural place and take a knee to MAGA. And uh, so at some point you go, 
you know, really, you know, Clemma, what are, what are you thinking being associated and promoting guys like this? And, uh, you know, Beatty's tweets um, were out there and Williams didn't explain, retract or qualify his promotion to Beatty or distance himself um, for quite a long time. And later he, you know, he scrubbed his Twitter account. But but there it is. There it is. This is this is who these guys play with. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to be revealed by who they welcome into their universe as right. people who are legitimate actors when clearly what you're describing there is racist, right? I mean, there's that's the plain way to describe it. But, you know, the thing I really have taken away, both from watching Claremont from afar and also talking to Ryan Williams, is that they're very resistant to feeling like they have to be accountable to the mainstream media, to elites, to people who, in their view, would just continue to come after them with pitchforks until they sort of yelled right. them out of existence. And so I, I think part of what might be going on is that, you know, they're not they, – I think they've just said no to disavowal culture, right? right. I think they've said no to – I'm going to put out a statement when one of the people in my sphere does something that's blatantly racist because if I bow to this, I'm going to bow to I'm going to have to bow to the rest of it because I'll just exactly be right. bending the knee. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly right, but it also it means that you're unmoored to any standards of of decency um whatsoever that you never apologize it means you don't apologize for things you actually believe but it means you also then can't hold yourself accountable when people have crossed the line. I mean, that, that's part of, that's part of the trap. You know, I'm, I'm, I am never going to agree with you people, um, because I hate you, but what if you're right? And so this kind of brings us to John Eastman, doesn't it? Right. I mean, you know more about this than I do, because this um, is your life story, yeah. Charlie. But <laughs> I think one of the things that's most interesting about Claremont is not just that they would resist the New York Times asking them for an apology statement. But there actually doesn't seem to be that check and balance system within the conservative world. Right, correct. Who would they listen to within that con the fractured conservative universe who wants to call them to account for crossing a line? I don't know what the answer is to that. Well, this is really interesting, and this is a great segue into John Eastman. I'm, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming most people in the podcast know that John Eastman is the Claremont fellow who wrote the, uh, the, the six-page memo basically laying out how Mike Pence could overturn the presidential election. It's become hugely controversial. Uh, they put out a statement trying to defend him, saying, you know, all the criticism is 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 wrong. The kind of the problem with their gaslighting is, is that he he put it in writing. I mean, we actually have the, the memo. But to your question, um, it's probably a small crack. Maybe it's only a hairline fracture. But they seem very upset that the Federalist Society has decided that this was a bridge too far. The Federalist Society is apparently somebody that whose opinion they care about. And the Federalist Society has decided that John Eastman, um, you know, is beyond the pale and they're no longer including him in some of their programs. So I, I, I did notice uh, a certain defensiveness in their in their defense of uh, of John Eastman's sedition memo uh, that 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 even the Federalist Society has decided to turn their backs on them. So that seemed to hurt a little bit. Yeah, no, I I think you're exactly right. And they also name checked the American Political Science Association yeah. for in their framing of the events, kind of pushing them out or making it impossible for them to fully participate in their annual conference. And, you know, I, I think this is a great point because it shows that 
even though they have this kind of cowboy attitude as a think tank that's going to go out on a limb and suggest things that have been anathema in the conservative world, um, they, they aren't quite ready to fully be out in the cold by themselves, right? And I, I think a reason for this, and the Federalist Society is a great example, is that infrastructure really matters, right? Power is partially about your ideas and your platform and the attention you can get and the ears that you can whisper into, but it's also about infrastructure. It's also to be able to have a line into the Federalist Society, which is obviously hugely influential in terms of shaping the American judiciary. So, you know, that may to them represent some sort of break in their power or some sort of diminution of their power. And I'm, I'm sure that feels threatening and insulting. Well, this was one of the things that um, I, I know that a number of critics really focused on is the, the way the Claremont Institute really aggressively embraced the big lie about the election and not merely in an intellectual way. So John Eastman, who is you know prominently displayed as one of their fellows, not only wrote that memo that apparently was part of a serious effort on the part of the White House to get the election overturned, Mike Pence doing what he clearly couldn't do, but... Um, John Eastman uh, spoke at that rally before the riot. Um, he actually showed up. So this was a guy that went beyond being an intellectual scholar or writing legal, me legal memos. Uh, there he was on January 6th, riling up the crowd. Here's a little bit of a soundbite from John Eastman that day. You know, the old way was to have a bunch of ballots sitting in a box under the floor. And when you needed more, you pulled them out in the dark of night. They put those ballots in a secret folder in the machines, sitting there waiting until they know how many they need. And then the machine, after the close of polls, we now know who's voted and we know who hasn't. And I can now, in that machine, match those unvoted ballots with an unvoted voter and put them together in the machine. So there's there's John Eastman, you know, big deal Claremont guy. You know, he's he's been a clerk for a judge. He, you know, taught at Chapman. He was big deal in the Federalist Society. Um, and, you know, clearly Claremont thought he was the kind of guy they wanted to be associated with. And again, this is, is if you wanted to do a narrative of what's been happening on the right, the the embrace of John Eastman and what's happened with John Eastman would certainly make a full chapter, wouldn't it? Yeah, there's a lot to the story, especially of how someone with that kind of resume and imprimatur can get to the moment that you just played where he's making that kind of speech, which is clearly based on conspiracy. There's not evidence for the record that there were secret folders stuck into ballot machines that at the last minute, you know, stuffed the ballot box, digitally speaking. Um, and I, I do think that it's indicative of where Claremont's at, that they felt the need to come to John Eastman's defense. They recently put out this statement where they're backing up both his legal advice to the vice president and generally their association with him. They're not will they're not only are they not willing to disavow him, but they're actually going to the mat for him. And I think that indicates something about where Claremont stands on this fact universe that I've been talking about, the need to use actual provable evidence to make your arguments and claims when you have a different point of view, rather than spinning off into the universe of conspiracy and falsehood. Yes. I, I think the technical term for this is bullshit. 
Um, <laughs> is, was, is, that what, is that what it is? I've been wondering all my days. I, I, I think that would be the technical term uh, for all of this. Uh, but just to remind people, I mean, Claremont's statement this week, I think, sort of underlined the fact that it's kind of hard to separate Claremont from what John Eastman was trying to do. I mean, they, they could have, you know, quietly scrubbed him from the website or looked the other way, you know, shuffled their feet. But they're but they're embracing him. And, you know, and in part, that's a clarifying moment because, you know, he, let's, we have a couple of sound bites of, you know, Claremont putting out videos that that really do um, promote uh, John Eastman. Let's let, let's play. This is about a 20 second clip from from a Claremont Institute video. The American way of life stands opposite to the way of life of the woke multiculturalists who practice a politics of identity and enforce it with political correctness. Our vision and theirs cannot coexist. We are in a regime-level contest, a struggle over what a society aims at, what its purpose is. Yeah, so that that kind of gives you the the sense of where they are intellectually here. Here's 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 another Claremont video where they're describing their mission statement. President Trump should be thought of as a response to multiculturalism. He stands as a living, breathing rejection of it, a defense of the American way of life. He has proved that being overtly anti-multiculturalist can serve as a winning tactic. He has proved that there is still a chance for conservatives to reassert the primacy of American culture. Okay, so that's not about John Eastman, obviously. But so what do they mean, Emma, when they talk about overtly anti-multicultural? Even conservatives, until about five minutes ago, recognized that America, of course, was a multicultural society. So what is what is the I mean, you know, on one level, maybe they're talking about a certain academic, you know, stream of thought. But it does seem that 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 seems kind of raw in terms of there are true Americans and then there are these other culturally questionable Americans. Yeah, I I think multicultural is this big technical term or it's a big placeholder for meaning that often gets interpreted in the most simplistic way as saying we don't want non-white people in America. But I, I actually think there's something a little more complex going on there. I think it's core to the Claremont universe way of thinking that not only is America a set of rights and principles that lots of people can be privileged to, but that there's something about the character of the American citizen, participants in the American project, that requires us to have shared values, that requires us to buy into certain premises. They bring up lots of things around gender, around the nature of human life and abortion, about the nature of marriage, thinking about sort of what it means to be oriented towards God, right? And I think they believe that those qualities are necessary to sustain the American project. That's where they see the big battle being fought. It's not just about government and who holds power. It's that they see a whole population in America of white and non-white people who no longer buy into those premises, which they see as fundamental. And so, you know, I, I think that in itself is is why they are so unwilling to yield because they think they're in this existential battle 
over the nature of the American soul, right? Well, the, sure. I mean, and they the existential battle, of course, you know, the Flight 93 election, you know, everything is at stake. But, but your interpretation sounds a little bit charitable because I certainly understand the idea of America having, you know, shared ideas and ideals. But it does seem they lean very heavily on the issue of racial identity, religious identity, the the fact that they are stressing multiculturalism. So, I mean, it 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 it, it seems like they they kind of blur the distinction between having shared values and having shared cultural identities. Yeah, I think the one of the tensions that you're pointing to is that on the one hand, they state their position as being against identity politics, against wokeness, right. against a way of thinking about the world that's rooted fundamentally in your identity and your characteristics. But they also put some degree of value in that. And again, I don't think this is that they just want white people in America. I think there are probably people of color who they would say, yeah, this person totally subscribes to my worldview. Like that Latino Catholic over there, I can jam with that. That's something that I, I see and recognize as, as being fundamentally American. But, you know, I do think there's a sort of sleight of hand going on here, which is it's not just the beliefs that people subscribe to, the creed that they're willing to be part of, but it's also something fundamental about a kind of identity or posture or worldview or willingness to be identified as an American citizen described the way that Claremont wants an American citizen to be. They don't want the the flowering, a thousand flowers blooming in America, right? That's not what they see as, as the goal and the vision of this country. So let's go to the end of your interview because I thought it was a very interesting exchange. So Ryan Williams, at, at the very end, um, you know, you ask him about uh, civil war. I worry about such a conflict. The civil war was terrible. It should be the thing we try to avoid almost at all costs. A lot of normal Americans just want to go about their daily lives, raise their families, and make sure that our kids are successful. It's really not that ideological, ultimately. I place a huge amount of hope in that. At the national level, the elite level, we have to advance intellectual ideas that we think are true and the politics that we think will be the most successful. And here's the interesting uh, uh, sentence. But we underestimate the extent to which we can lower the temperature in America and move forward with a lot more unity. And then you, Emma Green, said, I'll look forward to that the next time I read the Claremont Review of Books, that effort to make sure our temperatures are lowered. So snark implied, like, were you thinking, right, I've been reading your stuff. You're the Flight 93 guy. Really? I'm going to I'm going to leave that to readers to interpret. This is my my writerly privilege, right? <laughs> but, you know, I think it's interesting that he wanted to at least hold out that pretense that that's part of their goal. And I, I if I were trying to give a charitable interpretation of that, I would guess two things about where that's coming from. The first is that I do think at a theoretical level, they subscribe to this view that I think is pretty common among especially religious conservatives, which is that politics is not our salvation. And so moving our focus as a country away from 
national politics is actually the way to have a good life. And I, I think at some theoretical abstract level, they're bought into that notion. But the other thing that I think is is interesting in an open question about Claremont is whether they believe they speak for a kind of silent majority, right? Whether they believe that actually the views that they're articulating represent a huge portion of America as shown by all of the people who love Donald Trump. And there's unity be, to be found in the fact that they have much broader support than people might give them credit for. Well, this is the this this is uh, my, my concern with groups like um, like like Claremont is that um, I don't think they represent a view of of a majority of Americans, but they are normalizing uh, certain views that would never have been in the mainstream, um, and they they give permission they give permission to people to perhaps go in a direction that they would never have gone in the past. You know, I've, I've talked about the, the the fact that none of this is inevitable. If you had thought leaders who appealed to the better angels of her nature, people would go in a different direction. If, if Jack Kemp was driving the Republican Party right now, um, then I, I think you would have a different different tone. But, you know, in, in, in some ways, you know, you do describe um, Claremont, you know, as the intellectual home of America's Trumpist right. But also it it is the engine for normalizing Attitudes about identity politics, um, about authoritarianism, about who is an American, um, raising the temperature of our divisions in uh, in a rather extraordinary way. I mean, are, are, are you, do you worry about that? I mean, no, you you obviously caught some flack for why did you give a, a, a platform to these folks? But isn't that their project is to normalize ideas that used to be confined to the far reaches of the fever swamps? Look, I think there is a chicken and egg question about Claremont. One version of this would say Claremont is actually giving voice, intellectual heft, historical architecture to ideas and feelings that some segment of Americans, whether or not it's a majority, feel. And it's trying to give words and language to the vast ball of energy that led to the election of Donald Trump, right? So right. you could say Claremont is actually just describing something that already exists or giving it a little bit more substance or sophistication, trying to explore it. The other version is the one that you're telling, which is that Claremont puts out ideas and spreads them and introduces people to concepts that they never would have encountered before and makes it so that our already inflamed politics are more inflamed. And I, I think there is a little bit of truth possibly to both versions, depending on how you view it. But you know, from my point of view, you asked about why would I give a platform to a guy like Ryan Williams. To my point of view, there's nothing about either of those perspectives that says we as journalists should not be interested in talking directly to the leaders of this project about what they're doing and why. In fact, I think it's critical because you can't wish it away and you can't just yell it out of existence. There's something real going on here, whether they're creating it or whether they're reflecting it. And so for me as a journalist, I think it's critically important to directly engage with that. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. And I think one of the big mistakes that uh, people on the right made was ignoring these voices for so long, this, this notion that, well, don't pay any attention to them, they'll just go away. Well, we, we tried that. Um, and, and look where it got us. I do think that we need to engage them and we need to talk to them and, and figure out what's, what's going on there. My concern, though, is that, 
you know, they may think they're articulating the views of, of people out there. I, I, I think it's to use the, the crudest possible analogy. Actually, no, that I can, I can go a lot cruder than this. But it really is kind of, you know, putting lipstick on a pig. Um, you know, there have always been, you know, people who have been the, you know, intellectualizers of, uh, of hate and division. Uh, doesn't mean that the hate and division actually has real intellectual uh, content. It's that there are people who are willing to put the veneer of respectability on it. Um, and, and, every, and every movement, you know, um, has somebody who is going to be, you know, the chief ideologist of all of that and make it sort of quasi-respectable. And I think that's, that's what Claremont is doing. So I guess, that, and that's where I come down on it, but um, do you think that this Eastman thing will damage Claremont or do you think that it's just a speed bump for them? How, how do you think it will play out? Well, look, I think to understand the whole controversy, you have to be pretty deep into this world anyways, to know who John Eastman is, to understand his role in all of this as a legal advisor, to be following the play-by-play with Claremont, apologizing, not apologizing, making the statement, et cetera, et cetera. And I think everyone who has a stake in this is already laid down their chip about where they're what they think. And I think there are some people who are deeply invested in this who think that John Eastman should be disavowed. I think that includes people who are deep in the conservative movement, including leaders of the Federalist Society. And I think there are people at Claremont who think that he has been maligned and that his role in the whole affair has been misconstrued. So, you know, the battle lines have already been drawn. I think what I'm watching is the extent to which Claremont its universe, the people it purports to represent, will grow their influence if that actually happens? And if so, will there be a role for people like John Eastman? How will they deal with conspiracy? How will they deal with lies? And what will that do to our broader culture as a right. country that's already really struggling to share a fact universe? Yeah. Well, that's that's why I think this uh, this dividing line with the Federalist Society, I think, is 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 potentially so important. I mean, it's one thing to play around with the big lie. It's something else for an organization that has been so influential to the judiciary um, being associated in any way with attempts to uh, really violate the Constitution. And, and you know, as you, as you pointed out, I mean, it's there, there was no way that Mike Pence was going to be able to overthrow the election. And I think that, you know, there there is that that weird psychological thing that's going on where I think there are a lot of people who will go along with the big lie because they think, well, I have to. What's the harm? It'll pass. But when you actually get down to the nitty gritty of the mechanism of overthrowing an election or arguing that, in fact, you should violate the Constitution, that may be the breaking point, at least for now, because when it stops being the breaking point, then we are really in a world of hurt. If the Federalist Society, for example, eventually decides, well, maybe John Eastman, you know, maybe he had a point, maybe that sort of thing could happen, then then we're in a really brave new world, I think. Yeah, I I don't think we're there yet. And I think you can see this in the kind of conflict between Judge Ludig, who is Mm -hmm. obviously this very high profile um, judge who Johnny Spin clerked for, who basically came out on Twitter and stated in no uncertain terms that there was no space for the vice president to delay or influence the certification of the electoral college vote. And so, you know, I I think the fact that people like him who are as conservative as they come, as deep in the movement as they come, the fact that they're willing to step out and 
call out what they see as a dangerous veering away from the rule of law and the Constitution, I think suggests that we're not there yet. Um, and the conservative movement is not there yet. So, you know, the question is, will the guardrails that you're talking about be able to sustain uh, and, and hold to be able to keep contained uh, some of the conflicting elements within the, the right? Emma Green, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Emma Green's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers politics, policy, and religion. And she is, uh, what, what, what is your feature called? The, the Atlantic interview now, where you ask uh, rude, direct questions? <laughs> that should have been our tagline. That didn't occur to us, but I'll uh, suggest that to my editor. Okay, well, that's, that, that would work. Anyway, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it very, very much. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.